Proverbs 18, verse 12. This is the word of our Father. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Before we turn to the Lord in the text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for your inexhaustibly rich word. We thank you that, Father, we can meditate on a single verse and see so much. Indeed, we could spend a whole lifetime meditating on one verse and still be seeing new things. And so, Father, I ask that our experience this evening would be one of great joy as we sit at your feet as Mary did, and listen as you speak to us through your word. Father, we thank you that the preaching of your word is your word. So, Father, be with us and speak to us this evening. Use this evening for your glory and for our good. Make us grateful, make us holy, make us humble, make us happy in the person of your Son. Do a mighty work here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I wonder if you've seen any of the, uh, the Back to the Future movies. Um, I enjoy them. I like the first one especially. Um, but there's something about time travel and you know, Back to the Future that really sort of taps into um, the human heart, right? There's something in our hearts um, that just longs to know the future. Um, we want to know what's going to happen. Um, we want to know ahead of time what's, what's going to happen. And um, you might have felt some variation of that. I don't think I'm alone there. Um, maybe you say to yourself, you know, I wish I knew what was coming. Or, or maybe kind of um, part of the same dynamic, after something happens, you, you, you say to yourself, man, I wish I had seen that coming. I wish I knew that that was going to happen. Now, obviously, Back to the Future is fantasy, but um, there's a sense in, there is a sense in which we can kind of time travel. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, think of the petrol light on your car. You know, that little light that lights up. Um, it's kind of a form of time travel, isn't it, right? That little light says, this is what's in your future. This is about to happen. This is coming. And if you don't do something now, you'll be stranded by the side of the road. Something bad is coming, in other, in other words. But it's not just negative, right? Positively, this is true too. Positively, you, you, can, you can tell what's coming. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, with my kids, um, I've started calling chocolate medicine. Don't ask me why, but if I want to treat Henry and Juliet, I'll go to the pantry and I'll say, you guys need some medicine, right? And the moment they hear that, they know something good is coming, right? Or another example, think about a dog. Um, if you've got a dog, you'll know the moment you go and grab that lead, that dog knows what's coming, right? It knows something good is coming. We're going to go for a walk. Um, now Solomon is talking about something similar here in verse 12, right? Notice this word before. This word before is a time-traveling word, isn't it? Before destruction, he says. Before things blow up. Before things crumble, before things turn to custard, a man's heart is haughty. It's like a petrol light. 
you see haughtiness in a man's heart and you know, you can be certain destruction is coming. But again, the verse isn't just negative because, positive, uh, because Solomon also uses the word before in a positive context. He says humility comes before honor. So before honor is bestowed, before a man is lifted up, before a man is exalted, before things go well, there is humility. In other words, in a sense, you can know the future, right? For good or for ill, you can know the future. You can, as it were, time travel. So this is what we'll be looking at this evening, and we'll look at it in four parts. Destruction, haughtiness, honor, humility. Destruction, haughtiness, honor, humility. And then as we close, I want to think about how this verse worked out in the life, not only of its author, King Solomon, but also of the, great, the one greater than King Solomon, King Jesus. But firstly, destruction. What does Solomon mean by destruction here? Well, the word itself means break, collapse, crash, downfall. And so you get the picture, don't you? Think of a destroyed building. Maybe think of a building that's been demoed, right? You've probably seen videos of buildings getting demolished. There's a series of explosions and then the building just collapses on itself. And that's it for the building, isn't it? Right? That's it. I mean, you, you can't come in afterwards and say, oh, shoot, um, it's supposed to be the building next door. Um, can we reverse this? Can we put it back together? You can't do that. Once it's destroyed, it's destroyed. But then go deeper. What is it that's being destroyed here? Because you, because you can destroy a lot of things, can't you? You can destroy a building, but you can also destroy a company. You can destroy a marriage. But you can also destroy your personal life. You can destroy all sorts of things. You can destroy a ministry. You can destroy a church. You can also, and this is the worst kind of destruction, you can also destroy your eternity and the eternity of others. And the question is obvious, isn't it? In which context is Solomon speaking? The answer is what? The answer is it's universal. It's universal. Think about companies that collapse in some sort of massive financial scandal, right? Think about Enron, think about Theranos. Those words might not mean anything, but think about companies that collapse in some sort of massive financial scandal, some Ponzi scheme. Who do you find at the helm of such companies? You don't find humble people. You find haughty people, don't you? Prideful people. Well, think about ministries that collapse in some sort of massive scandal. Again, who do you find at the center of such ministries? A big ego. You find haughtiness. Well, think about marriages that get destroyed. Again, you'll find at least one of them was just too proud, was haughty. Too proud to confess wrongdoing, too proud to seek help and we could go on couldn't we but that brings us to our second heading solomon says before destruction a man's heart is haughty so the word haughty means um, high exalted proud 
And it's really interesting, the different language that gets used to talk about the pride. It's often related to different body parts, right? We talk about having a big head. We talk about looking down at your nose, down your nose at other people. Um, or the Bible, this is very evocative. The Bible talks about having haughty eyes, right? Haughty eyes. That is a haughtiness in the way that you look at others. And it's, there's almost a physicality to that kind of language, right? You can tell just by looking at someone's eyes sometimes that they're very proud people. But I want to focus on the body part mentioned here because Solomon doesn't speak of haughty eyes. He speaks of a haughty heart. He speaks of a man's heart. That is a man's inward being, not as eyes or head or nose, parts that you can see, but his heart, which you can't see. Now think about that for a moment. In fact, ask, ask the question with me. How did Solomon know this? How did Solomon know when a man's heart was haughty? How did Solomon know what was in the heart of man before destruction? How did he know? Because this, when Solomon's writing, well before MRIs and heart scans and CAT scans and all of that, and even if they had the technology, haughtiness doesn't show up on one of those scans. You're not gonna, you can't look at someone's heart once you've scanned it and say your problem is haughtiness. It doesn't show up. So how did Solomon know? How did Solomon know it was there before destruction? Maybe I can say it this way or ask it this way. Is Solomon talking from personal experience here? That is, is Solomon looking back on his life and thinking, right before things went bad for me, guess what I saw in my heart? Pride. Haughtiness. Arrogance. That's possible. If so, Solomon is a man who knew his own heart. Or is Solomon talking about others? That is, is he looking back on what he's seen happen to other men? And has he thought to himself, you know, right before destruction, right before their ministries were ruined or their, their churches were ruined, if I can speak anachronistically, right before, you know, their lives were ruined, their personal lives were ruined, right before their marriages were ruined, whatever... They were haughty. They were very proud men. That's possible. If so, Solomon is a man who knew the hearts of other men. What's the answer? We can't know for certain, but biblically speaking, we must be, if we are to avoid destruction, which is the warning here, sensitive to both. Firstly, sensitive to pride in our own hearts. Think of Jude's words. Listen to this phrase. This is what Jude says. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There's deep sensitivity in that phrase, is there not? Right? Imagine the most beautiful garment. Right? Whoever made it just nailed it. It's your favorite color. Perfect size, shape, material. But there's just one little tiny stain that you can't even see, but you know it's there. It's just a little stain, a red dot, right? You don't hate the garment. You say, oh, well, the rest of it's fine. Just not that big of a deal. What Jude is saying here 
as if it's a garment stained by the flesh. Tiny little spot. If it's a garment stained by the flesh, by pride, by arrogance, by haughtiness, you should hate it, right? There's just deep sensitivity to sin there. So just to, to translate this over in terms of pride, imagine you do something and you just nail it, right? A sermon or a meal or an argument or a photo, whatever it is, it's just beautiful. But if you're being honest, right, you know there's pride in your heart relating to that thing that you've just nailed, that you've just done really well. You recognize my heart was proud in that moment. You should hate, as it were, that garment. It should cause you to recoil and say, I hate my pride. I don't want that there. Do you do that? Do you recognize pride in your heart when it's there? That's the first step, just seeing it. And if you do see it, do you hate it? But back to the text, not only do you see pride and are you sensitive to pride in your own heart, do you see pride and are you sensitive to pride in the hearts of others? People often say, this is another one of those Christian cliches, tyrannical Christian cliches. You can't know the heart of other people. You've heard that said multiple times. You, you just don't, you, I don't know what's in their hearts. You don't know other people's hearts. You can't talk about what's in other people's hearts. That sounds right. And it is true kind of to an extent. But biblically speaking, it's wrong. Think about Paul's words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul warns about people in the last days being lovers of self, proud, arrogant. And you know what Paul tells Timothy to do? He says, avoid them. Now, what does that imply? It implies Timothy is going to be able to tell if he's looking at someone who is a lover of self, who is proud, who is arrogant. And the question is, can you tell that? Are you sensitive to that? Because if you can't, it's dangerous. Because according to Solomon, men who are haughty bring destruction. And if you're around them when that destruction comes, you get caught up in it. So that's the first part. The negative side of the equation in verse 12. Now let's look at the positive side. Solomon says, humility, but sorry, before destruction of man's heart is haughty, and then the positive side, but humility comes before honor. Now, what does Solomon mean by honor here? We saw that destruction was universal. What about honor? Does this apply in the workplace and in marriage and in life in general? Is this universal too, in other words? I think in one sense it is. I'll give you a really, really interesting example. Probably all know who Neil Armstrong is, right? Neil Armstrong, not Louis Armstrong. Um, Neil Armstrong. So if you haven't heard of him, I hope you have. Um, first man to walk on the moon. And you just think about that, right? First man to walk on the moon. I mean, what an honor to have bestowed on you. I mean, as far as honors that humans can bestow on one another, that would have to be, in my view, probably the greatest, right? Imagine getting that call from NASA. Neil, you're going to be the one, the first one to walk on the moon. I mean, how would you feel getting that phone call? You'd be like, wow, you have just put me in the history books with that, right? Next to Christopher Columbus and all those other guys who were famous for doing, you know, being the first to do something. I'm right there. 
But the really interesting thing is this. You know why they chose Neil Armstrong? Why did NASA choose Neil Armstrong to be the first man to walk on the moon? Why was he their choice? It's really interesting. This is from the Wikipedia page. Don't trust Wikipedia, generally speaking. It's more like social media, but trusted in this instance. Listen to this. Now, NASA management saw him, this is a quote, as a person who did not have a large ego. That's why he got chosen. NASA was like, this guy doesn't have a big ego, so he's going to get to be the first one to walk on the moon. You see this relationship, don't you? Humility comes before honor. And that brings us to our second heading, humility. So this word humility means in part to have to view oneself rightly. You have an accurate view of yourself. You don't think too highly of yourself. Instead, you see yourself as what you are. Finite, fallible, sinful, loved by God to be sure. Infinitely loved by God, but finite, fallible, and sinful. But there's more to it than that. To be humble isn't just to have a right view of yourself. It's also associated with being gentle. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm gentle and lowly. That means humble and hard. And so Solomon says, that kind of disposition, humility, comes before honor. Now again, ask the question I asked earlier, how does Solomon know this? Is he talking from personal experience? That is, is he looking back on his life and thinking right before stuff went well, right before honor, my heart was humble? Or is he talking about others? That is, again, is he looking back on what's happened to other men, men upon whom honor has been bestowed? And has he thought, you know what they all had in common? None of them were egos. They were all humble men. What's the answer? We can't know for certain, but biblically speaking, both are possible. It's possible Solomon is talking about others. I think we prefer that option because we struggle to think about a humble person talking about themselves being humble. We're like, doesn't work. How does that work? How can a humble person talk about their own humility? But it is possible that Solomon is talking about himself. Think about our call to worship. The psalmist says, my heart is not lifted up. The same word Solomon uses for haughty. The psalmist is saying, my heart is not haughty. So it's possible Solomon is speaking about himself in verse 12. He's speaking from personal experience. He's speaking of his own humility. But that brings us to a really important point, which is this. If he is talking about his own humility, and that is possible, what do we know about his humility, about Solomon's humility? We know it wasn't perfect, was it? In fact, it was far from perfect. In fact, the way Solomon ended his life would possibly suggest that as much as he wrote verse 12, he failed to heed it himself. And this is the last thing I want to look at. I want to compare Solomon with Jesus. Just ask the question, in light of verse 12, how did Solomon end his life? How did his life end? It ended badly. 
It ended with destruction, didn't it? Right? His kingdom was basically destroyed, wasn't it? God took the kingdom away from him. God told him, since you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Think about it. The author of verse 12 of Proverbs 18, the author of this verse, warning us about destruction, ended up himself at the end of his life where? In a place of destruction, in a really bad place. And if that's true, if the guy who wrote verse 12 failed, sinned, ended his life, not with honor, but with shame, then where is our hope? Where is our hope? The answer is in another king, isn't it? A greater king. King Jesus. Think about how similar, on the one hand, the way Jesus ended his life was to Solomon, and yet how different. It was similar to Solomon, wasn't it? Like Solomon, Jesus' life ended in shame. He ended it on a cross, naked, covered in blood and spit. So in one sense, it was similar to how Solomon ended his life. But in another sense, it was completely the opposite because that shame wasn't Jesus' shame. It was Solomon's shame. It was our shame that he was bearing upon himself for our haughtiness, for our pride, for our sin. He bore that in humility. And then what happened following that? The opposite to what happened to Solomon. Jesus didn't have the kingdom taken away, did he? Like Solomon. The exact opposite. He was given, like he said to his disciples, because of his humility, he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. And anyone, and it doesn't matter how sinful they've been or how proud they've been, anyone who says, God, accept me because I'm this or that, anyone who refuses to say that, but who says instead, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that person gets clothed with honor, not because they deserve it, but because Jesus took their shame for them. That person, in other words, goes home justified. And here I want to close by reading that beautiful parable that the Lord tells, because it touches directly on verse 12. Listen to this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May we all follow the tax collector in that wonderful prayer, humbling ourselves before the Lord, knowing that he will exalt us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us your word to show us the path of life and we thank you that that path of life is found in the death of Christ and his work for us we thank you 
that he is perfectly humble, gentle and lowly in heart. And we pray that we, in turn, would be humble, not so that we might be saved, but because we have been saved through his work and his work alone. Father, keep us from sin and grant that we would walk in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.